If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. This is one of my favorite parables, and a famous preacher said once, if it does not rub you the wrong way, you must not have all your fur. <laughs> John Wesley, founder of Methodism, had this parable in mind when he said, quote, there are few matters more repugnant to reasonable people than the grace of God. So let's unpack the parables my seminary dean used to say. First, a word about labor practices in the first century in Palestine under Roman rule. It's an agrarian society with more rocks than good soil, and everything was picked by hand using the first century equivalent of migrant workers. Scarce plots of choice land were largely in the hands of wealthy landowners, and when the harvest came, they often had more work to do than their own employees could handle. So they turned to day laborers, that is, to those who work when someone hires them for subsistence wages. 
You know day labor is hardly an obsolete idea. Day laborers still gather every day around the world in the hopes of being hired, including right here in Oklahoma City. So in this parable, the owner goes out early in the morning to hire day laborers for his vineyard, starting at six o'clock in the morning, which is when the workday in the ancient world began. He returns again at nine to hire more, again at noon to hire more, again at three to hire more. We don't know why he keeps coming back, whether he underestimates the amount of work each time or whether there are not enough workers to choose from, but by the end of the day, he comes back one last time to hire enough to finish the job, and it's five o'clock in the afternoon, one hour before quitting time. Typical of the parables of Jesus, we know nothing about the owner, how he got rich, and we know nothing about the workers, how they came to be poor. Jesus never talks about what we talk about today when we say the deserving versus the undeserving poor. Oddly, we never use those terms about the rich. As when, say, someone inherits all his wealth and masquerades as a brilliant businessman. But, but this much is certain, economic hardship and desperation turns us all into either beggars or day laborers. And everyone who heard this parable knows exactly how the game is played. And all we know about the owner, really, is that he comments upon his own character when he says, I will pay you what is right. And later, that he is doing no injustice to anyone by his decision about how and how much to pay the workers. He also refers to himself as generous. The Greek word is agathos. Indeed, there's nothing in the parable to suggest the owner does anything wrong, but he does do something very strange. At the end of the day, he calls the laborers together to hand out their paychecks, if you will, because the Torah stipulates that the poor must be paid on the working day itself before sunset. So far, so good, until the owner, referred to in the parable as the Lord, makes the first of two serious mistakes. Number one, we know something is up when he decides to pay the last workers first. That is, he pays the 11th hour workers first, and the boys who had no more than put their gloves on, picked up a shovel, and broken a sweat before the whistle blew and it was Miller time, get theirs first. Which means, of course, those who had worked all day bearing the heat of the sun, they got to see how much the Johnny-come-latelys received. Obviously, this landowner does not have his MBA and had never been to any professional marketing seminars. Otherwise, he would have learned management rule number one, never let anyone else know what anyone else makes. It will only cause trouble. If he had simply paid the early laborers first, they would have already been down to the local watering hole telling stories long before those 11th hour workers got their generous surprise. Mistake number two, not using pay envelopes. <laughs> the dark brown ones that are intentionally opaque and prevent the mail clerk from holding them up to the light to see how much the boss makes. Or to update this analogy, you should have just used PayPal and transferred funds electronically without copying anyone. Because about few things are we more resentful than we are about inequities in pay. 
The late great Presbyterian preacher Ernest Campbell said once, we are all economically located these days. You can talk about anything in the church nowadays, sex, politics, the latest gossip, but you're never supposed to talk about what anyone else makes because honest conversations these days about money, that is the last taboo in the church. Meanwhile, back at the parable, our morning crew stands around in amazement as their barely ruffled 11th hour workers get paid. Amazed they watch, but they do not break into a chorus of amazing grace. I'm sure that at first they must have wondered what has gotten into the owner's head that he would pay so much for one hour's work. And then they perhaps thought, aha, I will get more. They may have even been doing the math silently in their heads. Let's see, one denarius for one hour, that would be 12 denarii for the real men. So when they also received only a denarius, they grumbled. They grumbled, which as you all know is Bible speak for they are PO'd, which I think is a French term, but never mind. It's a New Testament euphemism for mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. There really is a lot of grumbling that goes on in the Bible, particularly after Jesus messes around with what everyone thinks they know about God. So the guys who've worked all day said, in effect, how dare you treat us so unfairly? In other words, paying them too much means you have paid us too little. By overvaluing them, you have undervalued us. But wait, upon further reflection, we know that in fact, no one has been underpaid. No one received less than they bargained for, it's just that some received more. The early laborers contracted for a denarius, that's exactly what they got. Therefore, and this has always been intriguing to me, no one in this parable is mistreated, but some appear to be over-treated. Now, why do you suppose Jesus would tell this parable, and why would Matthew preserve it in his gospel? Scholars believe the writer of Matthew's gospel is addressing one of the biggest problems in the early church, second only, perhaps, to the delay of the second coming, and that is the reaction of the largely Jewish early church to the inclusion of Gentiles. Did those non-Jews just think they could come at the 11th hour and get all the benefits that belong to God's chosen people? I mean, this is human nature. It happens in churches. New members of a congregation need to prove themselves before becoming a deacon or an elder. I mean, some churches have a rule that if you haven't been an active member for 10 years, you can't serve on any boards or committees. Otherwise, what? You've got amateurs running the church people who don't know an introit from a benediction and couldn't tell you the difference between a cherubim and a seraphim if their life depended on it. And one thing I've noticed over all these years is that church growth is great in theory. It's kind of like the way we love our children, in theory. We all want to grow, but we want to manage the growth in such a way that things don't get out of hand. We're supposed to welcome the stranger, but what if the stranger is really strange? For one thing, you come to church one morning, someone else is sitting in your pew. That's when the reality of church growth really sets in. Honey, somebody is in our pew. It's okay, don't worry, I'll get one of the ushers to move them. 
And here's another way to think about it. In the church, we talk all the time about looking up. I look to the hills whence cometh my help. But the truth is, we really do a lot of looking from side to side in the church. I even invented a theological term for it because rhetoricians do this in their spare time. I call it lateralism. You don't look up, you look from side to side and you look and say over there, who's that? Who let her in here? And to be honest, I think that's what some of the Jews are asking when it comes to these new Gentile loving Jesus people. Who let these people in here? There goes the neighborhood. You see, when someone seems to be getting more than they deserve, it is very hard not to feel resentment and jealousy and to wonder why God doesn't pay more attention and take better notes and hand out grace with a little more common sense. And this parable makes the point so well, when it comes to God, our thoughts are not God's thoughts even on our best days. The most haunting line in the parable to me is the question asked at the end by the owner, can't I do with my own what I will, or do you begrudge my generosity? Because in all honesty, the answer is yes. Yes, we do often begrudge the generosity of others, especially if we're not the recipients of that generosity. Take the reading of the family will, for example, after the death of a parent. If a parent leaves one child more than the other because that child needs more, the one who gets less grumbles. I'll never forget sitting in class one day in seminary and hearing Fred Craddock say, did you know that in the Bible, more people get mad over God's merciful treatment of those who don't deserve it than they do over God's harsh treatment of those who do? And that's because conventional wisdom says people ought to get what they deserve. No more, no less, especially no more. But we hear these conversations all the time. She married him for his money, don't you know? He drives a BMW, but he's not really BMW material. And the mink coat, it belonged to his first wife. Regifting, I think they call it. Growing up, all of us Myers kids, we had to be in church every Sunday morning, which may be why I'm the only one left who's still in church on Sunday morning. <laughs> But I, I also have loved to play golf since I was very young, and I know golf's a very Republican game for a Democrat to play, but that's another sermon. <laughs> you see, the problem was growing up, I could never play in a tournament because the final round was always on Sunday. How do golfers go to church? I asked myself, and then I would read in the paper about a man who'd gone fishing and caught a giant fish, and there'd be a picture of him holding it up proudly, and the caption read, Joe Smith caught this 11-pound bass at Lake so-and-so early on Sunday morning. I'm thinking, Sunday morning? Why isn't he in church? I like to fish. So if I were God, that guy would go home skunked, not a bite. If I were running the world, people would not be rewarded for being flawed, which means, of course, in the end, when you think about it, that'd be the end of grace for all of us. No wonder envy's one of the seven deadly sins, what poets have called the green-eyed monster. It eats away at us like acid, and in the end, it's totally wasted energy. 
For one thing, we never know everything there is to know about why someone got what they got, and just as importantly, we never consider what else may be happening in their lives. We don't know what pain they may be feeling, what self-doubts, what struggles may be occurring that we don't see because we're too busy worrying about whether they're getting more than they deserve. People in the church are always arguing over doctrine and the correct interpretation of this passage or that teaching, and then they feel deliciously superior to others who hold a different viewpoint. But what the Bible keeps telling us again and again is to just let God be God. That's a very difficult thing to do. And while we're at it, shouldn't there at least be some reasonable correspondence between what a person does and how well they get along in the world? Otherwise, how's anybody supposed to know how to behave? I mean, we don't raise our kids this way. We don't say, oh, so you stayed up past curfew and lied to me. I'm raising your allowance. Here's the new keys to your car. So you can see why this idea that God loves even the unlovable was so offensive. Do you know that there's even a line in the Gospel of Luke that says, God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. Well, isn't that special? <laughs> the author Madeline Le Engel remembers a night years ago when one of her small children was scared and unsettled by the death of a grandmother and by a storm raging outside her window. So at her bedtime prayer, the little girl was direct in her petition. She closed her eyes and clutched her hands together and said, Dear God, please be God. Amen. We have a tradition in our family. Whenever we're parting ways, we say, bye, I love you, be careful. We've done it for years. All the kids do it, the granddaughters do it. But lately, Sean and I have added an acronym to our everyday conversation. When one of us seems to be second guessing why someone is doing something and we in the ministry, you're wondering about that all the time, and particularly if we are being judgmental or paranoid about it, the other will say, B-O-D, B-O-D, which as you all know, because like Luminous Web, it's become part of the lexicon at Mayflower, B-O-D means benefit of the doubt. The older I get, the more I think B-O-D should be considered one of the Christian virtues. Because I don't know about you, but most of the time when I thought I knew why someone was doing something, especially if I put a negative spin on it, I was almost always wrong. People spend a lot of time in this life misunderstanding what other people are really doing and why they are doing it. Mostly, I think, because we take ourselves too seriously. A wise man told me once, he happens to be in the sanctuary, when I was 20, I didn't care what anybody thought of me. When I was 40, all I worried about was what other people thought of me. Now that I'm 60, I realize that people haven't been thinking about me at all. <laughs> I can hardly imagine a more radical change occurring in the world today than if people were to suddenly stop calculating what other people deserve or nursing their wounds because life is so unfair. Is there anyone left on the earth who still thinks that life is fair? Surely not. What we are called to do is to try to make sure that life is just, 
because it will never be fair. Now, here's an interesting thing I've noticed also. We tend to think we're doing well because we deserve it, but when others do well, they must have cheated the system somehow. In other words, why do we think of ourselves as self-made, but we think of other successful people as lucky? The truth is, and this is easy to say but hard to live, none of us are self-made. We are the product of an infinite network of forces beyond our control. And to put this in religious terms, we're saved by grace, not by works or power or status. For that means that for any well-educated, healthy, straight, white male like myself, I had better never think that because I woke up on third base, I thought I hit a triple. Sean's even come up with a new trinity, a new trinity. She says that she tries to remember three things, be present, be kind, be grateful. Not bad. Be in the moment, be present, because we never know how many more moments we have. Be kind, because kindness is the heart of the ethical life. And be grateful, because when you know that you have more than you deserve, it will keep you grounded and remind you not to calculate what you or anyone else deserves. Or think of it this way to be in the room when someone else gets the gift and to applaud, to take genuine joy in the good fortune of other people and not to take secret delight in the misfortune of those you do not like. That is how you let God be God. So let's do the best we can. And if we want the benefit of the doubt, let's give the benefit of the doubt. Be present, be kind, be grateful. And remember, God's thoughts are not our thoughts even on our best days. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.